If you've listened to more than one of our podcasts, you'll probably be aware of the problem of the opacity of clinical trial data. Trials which are conducted but never see the light of day, or results within those trials which are never published. Pharmaceutical companies have their own policies on what they're willing to make public when, and for the first time, a new audit published on bmj.com collates and analyzes those policies. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and today to discuss that study, I'm joined by two of the authors, Ben Goldacre, author and senior Senior Clinical Research Fellow at Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine. Hi, Ben. Hi there. And uh, also Carl Hennigan, who's a Professor of EBM and Director of the CEBM, and also a friend of the pod. You'll have heard him on here a lot. Hi, Carl. Hi there. Um, So you guys have been talking about the problems of unreported trials for a long time, it seems. Um, and that problem even started things like the All Trials campaign, and it's partly prompted um, the Evidence Manifesto, which we'll talk about later on. Um, but this week, you've published an extensive audit of pharma companies' transpa- transparency policies around trials. And I was just wondering, why now? Why, at this point, did you decide to do that? Well, we wanted to generate a really accurate map of exactly what companies are committing to, because it's not helpful if discussions around transparency are conducted in generalities. So we wanted to know exactly what each company is committing to for ourselves as people who are interested in pushing things forward. We wanted to look at variation between companies, because that's also a really useful indicator of where there are gains to be made. So audit is a very commonly used tool in in medicine. We do audits to look at infection rates in surgery, to look at waiting times for talking treatments and psychotherapy. And it makes sense for us to do audits on transparency policies because the whole purpose of an audit is to see who's doing well and who's doing badly so that the people who are doing badly can learn from the people who are doing well, but also so that we can identify people who are falling short. And one very interesting finding from our audit as a consequence of that is that during a lot of the all trials campaign, people have said, oh, what these people are asking for is completely unrealistic. It can't be delivered. But in actual fact, every single aspect of the gold standard that we set out for a transparency policy has been committed to by at least one company, but no company commits to everything. And so the fact that every aspect of the gold standard has been committed to by at least one company strongly suggests that these are reasonable transparency commitments because they've all been judged as reasonable and realistic by at least one serious pharmaceutical company. Mm. Yeah, let me just, before you go and delve into the results, I think the concept of audit is quite an interesting notion because if you go back about 30 years in the sort of published literature, if you're going to the BMJ, if you're going to the Lancet, all these journals, you'll find some really important audits that were published and were published to sort of set out benchmark and improve practice. What we've tended to do is sort of follow the impact factor and start to publish randomized trials, systematic reviews, and many, very few of these top journals 
actually now accept audits, but actually there are probably reasons for that. One is probably because they're more contextually localised, but they're incredibly important for improving healthcare. And I think we should start to see, because of their importance to healthcare, more of the top journals say we're going to accept these types of audits. I think they've accepted this one because it is a global picture, because it includes all of the companies all around the world. Mm. And because it's new. Yeah, because I guess I guess the concept there is as well is on top of all the companies around the world is it's never actually been done and particularly in detail like it's been done across all of the top companies that are involved in drug manufacturing. I think also, um, I mean, it's only when you sit down and go through these documents with a clear purpose in mind i.e., in our case, trying to extract from each company's policy document exactly what is it that you're committing to. It's only when you do that that you start to spot the gaps. And actually, one of the most interesting aspects of our study and something that we really didn't expect to find when we set out was just how unclear these policies can be. I mean, we found policies that had not just ambiguous language and problematic or contradictory use of the term all, when just saying all trials, um, not just poorly defined caveats about the trials covered by the policy, but also inconsistencies within documents, multiple dis- documents describing one company's policy that had inconsistencies between them. We found examples of companies having different policies for different regions. We found companies that required um, a treatment to be improved on two continents before they would share um, information about the trial. All of these kinds of, of very interesting shortcomings in policies and, um, and, and devils in the detail, mm. I think only really became flushed out when we were going through and going, okay, well, we've got a, we've got a spreadsheet. What's the answer, yes or no? Do you commit to A, B and C? Yeah, I think well, that's a, I call that, I think when you look at this and we go back to, you said about all trials, so 2013, we're now four years into a sort of all trials. And I often think of the word all, so when you look at these policies, superficially, everything looks okay. Mm. And the companies look like they do. They have a policy that says, we register all trials. But how can you have a policy that registers all trials if it does not cover all the trials that the company has done in the past? Yeah. And so suddenly it comes unstuck that you realise half of the companies do not have a, any sort of promise to register the trials that they've done in the past. Mm. So this and is sort of cutting through some of that that rhetoric and, and maybe spin then. Well, I think, again, one of, one of the really interesting findings was that most companies have a superficially um, satisfactory policy in that they say we'll register trials and we'll post results. But it's only when you look at the details of exactly what's covered by that that you, that you identify shortcomings. Now, one very important shortcoming, as Carl just mentioned, is how far back does your commitment go? And we found that um, that start dates for commitments on sharing summary results only went back to, on average, 2005, um, some as early as 1999, some as late as um, 2014. Now, a lot of clinicians will listen to this podcast. I, I, I don't think you could find a single doctor 
anywhere in the world who only uses drugs that were approved after the year 2014. It's, it's very clear that we need the results of trials from much further back. We also found that commitments on sharing individual patient data and clinical study reports, which are these much more detailed sources of information about clinical trials, the average uh, start date for those commitments was much more recent, only 2012. Mm. So again, that's, that's hopelessly recent. And the second shortcoming um, is that it was very common for commitments on sharing summary results and clinical study reports and IPD to not actively include phase four trials, nor to include trials on unlicensed treatments or unlicensed uses of licensed treatments, trials on off-label uses. Now that again is very problematic. We know that off-label uses are very common. We know that off-label uses are often warranted, they're clinically reasonable. We know also that off-label uses are covertly promoted by companies' marketing teams, and there have been a very large number of um, court cases with billions of dollars in fines for companies doing that. Another example, again, of um, uh, policy commitments which are superficially comprehensive, but only when you start to think about them do the shortcomings start to arise. Some companies said, well, we'll share the results of all trials for all products that are approved or terminated. And the methods and results of clinical trials on unapproved treatments can be very important. The history of medicine is littered with examples where there have been problems with a whole class of treatments which have been apparent in trials on drugs that were members of that class that were never approved. And because those drugs were never approved, the trials were never shared, and um, they may have given early warning of of trouble ahead. So the reason for the all trials campaign being called the all trials campaign is that you need the results of all trials. And what we found with this audit is that even where people superficially commit to sharing the results of trials, when you look at the details, it's by no means all trials. Mm. You've talked a little bit there about some of the things that are driving these transparency policies around um, regulators uh, having rules on this um, in different territories. So, I mean, can you give us a quick overview of actually what the picture is around the world? What is it that's, that's you know, pushing um, the, or setting the transparency agendas? Um, well, there are a number of contributors and those have changed very recently. Just before we get to that, though, um, one very interesting aspect of the work that we did here is that companies themselves appear to be somewhat um, confused or or perhaps disorganized um, in their own understanding of their own transparency policies, which I think again goes to show um, how how disordered this world is, the, the world of trans transparency. And we know that because after we completed our data extraction, we wanted to make sure that companies had the opportunity to um, to engage with us, to, to, to correct anything which they regarded as an error. So we, we sent every company a full copy of what we had extracted on their policy, what we thought their policy was from reading it. And we asked them for something very specific. We said, if we are at all wrong on any of these points, please do let us know and please point us to the public policy document which shows that we're wrong and that your correction is appropriate. Now, when we did that, we got back 
an enormous amount of paper. So over half of companies replied, which is fantastic, and I think actually a very high response rate for this kind of study. Um, the, the replies were very, very open in length. Some were only a single page, a single email. Um, some of them were um, dozens of pages long. The longest was 39 pages long. Um, and overall, from 217 pages of company responses in total, which raised 300 points of contention, we identified only seven elements that required a change in the light of this critical feedback. So that's 0. just under 0.4% of all coded policy elements. Now, um, what was interesting during this process was that several companies stated that their actions exceeded their public policy commitments which is interesting because it shows that they have perhaps not thought through whether these policy documents are, are important documents that will be looked at and that will be judged. And that's very problematic actually because systematic reviewers, for example, on, on various occasions, request further information from companies about the methods and results of a clinical trial. And sometimes they're successful, very often they're knocked back. And we've already had one very interesting use case of our data from somebody in Cochrane who said, hey, I just requested uh, information on this particular trial from this particular company. And they say that this trial isn't covered by their transparency policy. Can you help me out? And we were able in, in the space of about 60 seconds to pull up um, what that company committed to, establish that uh, the company was um, incorrect in their response to the systematic reviewer about the, that particular trial not being covered, and also to send them a copy of the transparency policy that highlights um, the aspect that they were looking for. So companies themselves seem to be confused about their own um, public policy. But actually also importantly, just sorry again for, for a, a, something of a diversion, but very importantly and very important I think on the power of audit, one of the most simple but effective tools in the whole of clinical medicine. When we went to companies and said, this is what your policy says, is that correct? Four of them stated that they'll be changing their public policy in response to our contact, which I think is really, really interesting. And and I don't say that in any way to take credit for getting companies to, to, to change their policy, but rather to demonstrate the power of audit, the power of just very simply saying, this is your current performance. Here is feedback on how you're doing. And we know from, from audit and feedback studies on antibiotic prescribing, on infection rates uh, and everything you can think of in medicine, that that kind of audit and feedback does help to drive up standards. The second um, problem that you, you saw was limiting commitment to legal compliance, so the letter of the law. Um, how effective are those laws and what's going on with them? Are they changing? Are, are laws demanding that transparency increases or are we just seeing a status quo with them? Well, there are huge shortcomings with all transparency legislation around the world, um, both in terms of loopholes they have by design, shortcomings by design, and also, secondly, implementation. So, um, in 2007, the FDA Amendment Act was passed, and this said all trials have to post results to clinicaltrials.gov in summary data format within 12 months of completion. And what happened was everybody said, well, this is fantastic. Let's celebrate the end of the era of publication bias. This problem has been fixed forever. What I actually found was that when I was writing about problems like this, people would say, what's this guy talking about? This problem doesn't exist anymore. It's all been fixed by this law. But there were two problems. Firstly, 
Um, there was no audit of the implementation of the FDA Amendment Act. And when audits were finally done, the first was published in the BMJ in 2012 by Prayal et al. The more recent one published by Anderson in New England Journal in 2015. Um, both of those found that the rate of compliance with this legislation, which everybody said had fixed the problem forever, was around one trial in five. Um, and that's uh, a, a, an illustration of how, um, how ineffective this particular piece of legislation has been and it may slowly lumber into effectiveness with time and we might hope that that's more likely now that the formal rulemaking process for that law um, has been completed and published just a few months ago, uh, an extraordinary that it took a decade. Um, but FDA Amendment Act in any case doesn't cover all trials. First of all, it only cover tri covers trials after 2007 and as we've already discussed, uh, you know, that means it, it doesn't cover the vast majority of clinical trials. But secondly, it only covers trials within a certain footprint. So it's trials with at least one site in the US or being used for a marketing um, uh, authorization. It only covers um, trials on uh, approved products um, and so on. It's got particular shortcomings around um, non-pharmaceutical trials. And so for a company to say, we will comply with the law. We did not regard that as a, a clear and comprehensive transparency policy commitment because those laws do not cover all trials, firstly, and also in any case, their implementation has been um, chaotic and in some, some might argue uh, almost non-existent. Hmm. And um, do you think you know, the regulator is a, a carrot here, and I suppose public opinion is a stick. What do you think is most effective in actually getting transparency policies to improve? Well, I think you need to work across a number of fronts. Um, you, you cannot underestimate the power of culture change, but culture change is, um, is uh, you know, capricious, hard to measure. Um, it's hard to know what, what generates impact. Um, I think it's fair to say that with things like the All Trials campaign, certainly we've made it impossible for people to continue to pretend that this problem has already been fixed. And I think it's fair to say that, for example, when my book Bad Pharma came out a few years ago, um, that's what people were saying. People were being very dismissive, saying this problem's all in the past. And I don't think anybody can get away with saying that today. Um, but as for what drives change, well, that's a really interesting and difficult question. We've we've got a, a paper that we're that we're submitting shortly from the All Trials campaign, in which we describe effectively what we do, our our, our strategic approach, the, the kinds of activities that we engage in, which covers um, effectively really covert lobbying of um, regulators of professional bodies. Uh, building a public um, a, a public support for a, a set of clear commitments, which is what we did with the uh, the All Trials commitment, now supported by over 700 organisations and coming up for 100,000 individuals, um, how we work with the media and so on. And we've written that really modelled on um, some of the really interesting public health papers done by people who um, have worked towards more comprehensive uh, regulation of tobacco products which is, I think, a really interesting example of um, academics and clinicians working in public health using um, policy and using the media 
um, as tools to improve public health. And that is, after all, the the, the original ambition of, of public health. I, I can't remember whose quote it was, but, you know, um, the, uh, the population is the patient and parliament is our dispensary. Um, and I think it's important to recognise that if you want to put um, if you want to put knowledge into action in medicine in a clinical setting with one individual patient, then you need to do work to ensure that your um, your potential drug target is turned into a treatment and that your treatment is adopted and used appropriately and safely. If you come across policy problems like publication bias, then I think similarly it is attendant upon you to engage in what you might call translational work to ensure that those shortcomings are fixed and that you put policy fixes into action in the same way that you would get a drug used. Mm. Now, you mentioned earlier that... Can I just come in on that oh, point? Sure, of course, Carl. Um, you, you, your question was, what will make a change here? And, and to me, the key is when people, are, and it's starting to happen slowly, the recognition that when you find a clinical trial result that you consider makes a difference to patient care, you ultimately want to trust who's developed, who's disseminated, and who's presenting that information to you. And for far too long now, and this is going back 20 plus years, we have had an industry that has created so many problems that when you go out to the cold face of clinicians, they just do not trust industry, how, it, how evidence is produced and how it's currently disseminated. So at some point, and everybody recognizes, you recognize in this life, in your life, you only have to buy one shoddy product and you suddenly shift focus and say, well, I'll spend a bit more money and I'll buy something high quality. And we're shifting here into a world where people are slowly recognizing that these companies have to be high quality and have to be trusted. And if you go into this data and say, well, actually, you don't publish your results going back beyond 2014, you suddenly have a little chink in there where you go, well, we don't quite trust what these people do. And that's the fundamental issue here. Now, one of the issues that's with this paper that's going out live with the paper is the website policyaudit.alltrials.net. And I think what's clear here is companies can very easily change their policy and produce a policy that they can come back and go, well, look, actually on these four items on registry of trials, on results, we are going back to the inception and we're going to make us the gold standard. And I think that's one element there of them being more trusted. So when they find that treatment effect, that makes a difference. They may have an element of somebody saying, I'm quite prepared to believe these results. I think that's really important. Um, the, one of the... One of the terrible long-term consequences of questionable research practices, not just in industry, but also in academia, is that ultimately, although each individual player is, is probably motivated to an extent by personal or financial gain, or at least um, uh, sort of disorganization and chaos in the culture around them, um, Ultimately, the end product is a kind of undifferentiated cynicism amongst clinicians and patients. And I think it's really important that we preserve public trust. But we can't do that by issuing um, kind of you know, uh, fatuous, superficial statements. We can't do that by making leaflets about how everything's perfect and fantastic. We, we earn, in the era of transparent access to information through the internet, you, you, you earn public trust by doing the right thing. And I think it's really important that we up our game because 
No, I, I, I've spent a lot of my life working both as a clinician and a researcher, but also writing for the general public. And I've written about problems with pharma, but I've also written about problems with journalism, problems with quacks, homeopaths, and anti-MMR, anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists. And to my mind, the reason why people are so vulnerable to conspiracy theories about, oh, you know, the pharmaceutical industry are hiding the cure for cancer, you should buy my vitamin pill. The reason why people are vulnerable to conspiracy theories about um, vaccines causing autism is very simply because they know that things aren't quite right in the world of medicine. Now, that formless anxiety that people have correctly picked up that things aren't quite right, it takes on a, um, a rather a rather stupid conspiratorial shape in the form of anti-vaccine conspiracy theories and um, and the promotion of quack treatments like homeopathy and vitamin pills. But I think those, um, the rise of quackery, I think, is um, to a large extent the responsibility of those who have allowed medicine to be run so chaotically. Mm. Um, I mean, the other thing that the public do, though, is they get fatigued by, you know, constant negative um, news stories of the idea that something is unchangeable, you know, people give up trying to battle it. Um, and you've painted a fairly gloomy picture here of um, clinical trial transparency, but maybe with a, a couple of chinks of, of light when you said that um, some companies have already said that they might improve um, their policy based on your audit. And I was just wondering, was there any sign in there that things like old trials um, have actually started to make a difference in the way companies are actually uh, not just talking about this, but actually doing this? Well, look, I mean, just, just firstly, hang, hang on a moment, because um, this wasn't an entirely depressing picture. There are some companies, um, for example, Berenger Ingelheim um, does very well. By comparison to its peers, there are things that I would like to see them do better. But Berenger Ingelheim do actually rather well. They have a reasonably comprehensive policy on registration, summary results and clinical study reports and individual patient data. These commitments go back a reasonable distance. And so actually a very important finding from our audit is that many, many companies are actually proving themselves capable of making robust commitments that go back a very long way. But as I said at the beginning, every policy commitment that we set out as our gold standard has been met by at least one company. So we know that all of the aspects of the gold standard that we've set out are judged as reasonable by at least one company. And so they could all up their game. And as with best practice for all audits, we're not going to do this just once. We will look back in to see how things improve over time. That's a good point you mentioned about sort of, you know, old trials. There was lots of uh, impetus right at the beginning. 100,000 people signed up to the petition nearly. There was lobbies of parliament, European regulation. And generally what happens is, you're right, people start to drift away when you start to think we're not getting anywhere. What we do then is revisit and think, well, look, this was a really important idea at the outset. When we're at a low point, we suddenly sit around, brainstorm and think, what are the things we should be doing next that can be important to keep the message alive, but also move the field forward? I think there are lots of positives here because the most important positive is that most of this is now easily fixable. And I think, 
I'm going to I'm going to be sort of on the err on the side that lots of these policies look like they're being written by people who are not really taking the issue seriously in departments in in some of these companies, and I suspect on the back of this and with the ongoing audit that some of these companies are going to get their act together and get their smart scientific departments on this and produce policies that are very clear should only be one side. And should very clearly link to when you say here's where we make our results available link to where you're making them available mm-hmm. and i think the other thing is companies should just revisit this on an annual basis one of the disappointing things was that actually they don't take this serious by performing their own internal audits mm-hmm. just saying look as a company each year we're going to revisit this look at what we're doing and say how well are we doing and i think that would be a huge step forward in terms of transparency but also trust and just in terms of the bigger picture um well firstly we have a quantitative paper that is currently, um, I'm about to return some revisions to the BMJ, <laughs> and so who knows if you will publish it, but um, it contains, I think, actually some rather good news about forward progress on, um, on rates of trial reporting. But um, also we've seen very, very impressive forward movement in particular from non-industry clinical trial sponsors. So there's an editorial that I wrote in the BMJ just a couple of weeks ago about the WHO joint position statement, which was signed by over a dozen major um, funders of clinical trials. That includes um, Medical Research Council, Gates Foundation, and many, many others, all saying not we will have this policy immediately for transparency, but actually making um, very, very concrete and impressive commitments. So saying within 12 months, we will publicly launch a public policy commitment that meets the following criteria. So that's a large number of non-industry trial funders making positive public commitments. And that's also really important because we have to remember that um, trials conducted by academics and funded by non-industry sources are just as vulnerable to non-reporting as industry-sponsored trials. Some studies find they're better, some studies find they're worse. I actually, I'm not sure it matters who's better and who's worse here. The fact that either of them are short of 100% is a grotesque global public health scandal. Um, but I think um, I think that shows firstly that there's positive forward movement, but also um, we're just completing our audit of um, non-industry trial funders, which is the kind of the partner paper to the one that we're discussing today, and we'll be submitting that in a few weeks' time. Um, and I hope that people will find that as interesting as this, but also I, I hope that it will be helpful, um, assuming good faith. And actually, I think it's it is important to assume good faith. And in and and I I tend to until proven otherwise. Um, assuming good faith, I think that both the audit that we're discussing today on company transparency policies and our audit on non-industry trial sponsors will hopefully be used by at least some of these organisations to say, actually, maybe we can do better. And perhaps also, hey, maybe if we did better, we could knock out those other people and take them down the peg or two by leapfrogging over them in the rankings of transparency. You've been listening to Ben Goldacre and Carl Hennigan discuss clinical trial transparency. As always, if you like this, you can find more on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. There are over 200 episodes there, all available for free. 
and you can subscribe to make sure you don't miss out on any more. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us. It helps others find us and lets us know what you want. We'll be back soon with some advice on helping patients with bereavement and a series on the World Bank. Join us then.